Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the story of Major Armstrong, also known as the Hay Poisoner. But first, your true crime headlines. Police in Palm Beach County, Florida, announced the arrest of a suspect in the murder of Rachel Bay, whose nude body was found alongside a Florida highway in 2016. Bay had been beaten and sexually assaulted before her killer strangled her to death and dumped her on the roadside. Police were able to obtain a DNA sample from her body, which would eventually lead them to her killer. Investigators credit genealogy with solving Bay's murder and told reporters that the same technology helped them to further identify their suspect, 37-year-old Robert Tyrone Hayes, as the notorious Daytona serial killer who murdered at least four additional women in Palm Beach County between 2005 and 2007. But Palm Beach County Sheriff Rick Bradshaw told reporters that he is suspected in the murders of Laquetta Gunther in 2005, Julie Green in 2006, and Iwana Patton in 2006. All three women were found dead with gunshot wounds to their heads. DNA evidence collected from two of those victims was a match to Hayes, and he was connected by ballistic evidence to the third. Police are also working to connect Hayes to the murder of Stacy Gage, whose 2008 killing bears many similarities to the other two murders. Ms. Bay and the additional victims were all known sex workers, and the Daytona serial killer was known to target prostitutes and left semen at the crime scenes. Robert Hayes is known to have lived in Daytona Beach at the time of the killings and had initially been interviewed in Bay's death though at the time, investigators did not have enough evidence to connect him to the crime. Robert Hayes is being held without bail on first-degree murder charges in the death of Rachel Bay. Charges in the other cases are expected to follow in the coming months. The ex-girlfriend of Granville Ritchie, the Florida man accused in the 2014 rape and murder of a nine-year-old girl, testified last week about the man she had met just nine days prior to his alleged crime. 29-year-old Ebony Wiley testified that she had met Granville Ritchie in May of 2014, when he pulled up beside her in his silver Lexus as she walked down a street in Tampa, Florida. The two struck up a conversation and met for a date later that evening. They took ecstasy and had sex at Ritchie's apartment and Wiley testified that she was drawn in by the prospect of dating a man that she believed to be charming and wealthy. Ebony Wiley was a neighbor of nine-year-old victim Felicia Williams, and the then 23-year-old viewed herself as a sort of mother figure to the young girl, sometimes taking her to church or out to eat. On the day of her murder, Felicia Williams showed up at the nursing home where Ebony Wiley worked, looking for a friend. Her visit caused Wiley to get in trouble at work, and she called Granville Ritchie to vent about the incident and concerns that the young girl had been stealing. He suggested that they counsel her, and the two of them picked up Felicia Williams later that day. They took her to a restaurant, bought her dinner, and then went to Ritchie's apartment, where they lectured her about stealing. At some point, Ebony Wiley left the apartment to go buy marijuana, leaving nine-year-old Felicia alone with Granville Ritchie. 
she was gone for just under an hour. And when she returned to Richie's apartment, he told her that he had given the girl money to go buy candy at CVS. The clerk at CVS told Wiley that she hadn't seen Felicia. And even though she testified that Granville Richie was sweaty and shirtless when she returned to his apartment, Ebony Wiley believed his story that Felicia had gone missing on her own. Instead of reporting the girl missing, Ebony Williams and Granville Ritchie drank Hennessy and had sex on his living room floor. They agreed to make up a story about Felicia's disappearance and told Felicia's mother that her daughter had wandered off while Wiley was in the shower. She told investigators the same lie and only told the truth after Felicia's body was found floating near a bridge the next day. Ebony Wiley was charged with lying during a missing persons investigation, and those charges are still pending five years later. She was not offered leniency in exchange for her testimony and could face five years in prison if she is convicted. Granville Ritchie is facing the death penalty if convicted. His trial is expected to last two to three weeks. A Florida mother and her four children were found dead in Georgia six weeks after they were last seen, and the woman's husband is believed to be responsible for their murders. 32-year-old Casey Jones and her four children were reported missing by Casey's mother after she had not seen them for several weeks. When an officer went to Jones' home to investigate, he found the property vacant, and the home smelled of decomposition they requested a search warrant for the home. Around the time that they received the search warrant, Casey Jones's husband, 38-year-old Michael Wayne Jones, was involved in a traffic collision in Georgia. He told responding police officers that his wife's body was in the back of the van that he was driving, and then led investigators to the bodies of the missing children. It is believed that he murdered them weeks ago and stored their bodies at the family's home and in his van before driving to Georgia to dispose of them. So far, he has been charged with second-degree murder in the death of his wife. Charges in the murders of the children may come later, pending autopsy results. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the hay poisoner. But first, a quick break. Ladies, gentlemen, you can step out for a moment. Ladies, if your cup is only half full, then you're probably wearing the wrong bra size. Third Love is here to support you. Stop adjusting your bra straps. Enough with the underwire cutting into your flesh. Third Love has more than 80 sizes, including their signature half cup sizes. And their online fit finder quiz guarantees a perfect fit. That's because Third Love knows that it's not just size that counts, it's shape. Their online quiz helps you identify your true size and shape and matches you with the styles that are your perfect fit. My shape is the plunge. And this is the most comfortable, best-fitting bra I have ever owned. No more slipping straps, no more itchy labels, and no more painful underwires. Third Love uses lightweight, super thin memory foam that molds to your shape. Third Love are so sure 
that you'll love this bra that they offer 60-day return. Wear it, wash it, put your bra to the test. And if you don't love Third Love, return it free and Third Love will wash it and give it to a woman in need. For 15% off your first order, visit thirdlove.com minute. That's 15% off at T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash minute. What if you could use just one app for all of your health and weight loss needs? Noom has you covered. No more hunting for training apps. No more crash fad diets or calorie counters. Noom is like a nutritionist and a personal trainer, all in one app. This is not another diet. Noom knows that getting in shape isn't one size fits all. This app isn't about bad foods and good foods. Noom is a habit-changing solution based on a cognitive behavioral approach that teaches us why we do the things that we do and arms us with the tools necessary to break our bad habits meet our personal health and fitness goals, and stick to them for the long haul. It's easy. Just commit to 10 minutes a day, and if you go off track, don't sweat it. Your goal specialist in the Noom community will support you and help you get back on track. Small steps make big progress. I just opened my Noom app, and it told me that I took 997 small steps today. That's mostly pacing but it still counts. Take your first step now and sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash mm. That's n-o-o-m dot com slash mm. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Major Armstrong, also known as the Hay Poisoner. Herbert Rouse Armstrong was born on May 13, 1879, at Newton Abbott in Devon. His family was of modest means, but through the support of relatives, Armstrong attended Cambridge, earned a law degree, and in February of 1895 became a solicitor. After 11 years of practicing first in Devon and then in Liverpool, Herbert Armstrong heard of a vacancy in the town of Hay, where there was an opening for a managing clerk. In 1906, Armstrong moved to Hay, took up the position, and even invested some of his own savings into the partnership. When the oldest of the two partners died, Armstrong succeeded to the practice. With his newfound success, Herbert Armstrong decided that it was time to settle down and start a family. He soon married Miss Catherine Mary Friend, a girl he knew from his hometown, Newton Abbott. Within three years, the couple had three children, Eleanor, Pearson, and Margaret. And in 1910, the Armstrong family moved into a large, imposing home called Mayfield. By now, Herbert Armstrong was well-liked in Hay and quickly established himself as a pillar in the community. 
He was master of the local Masonic Lodge. He was church warden at St. Mary's and was appointed clerk to the magistrate's court in Hay. And his business was doing well. But all was not well at Mayfield. Catherine, or Kitty as her husband called her, was high-strung, eccentric, physically weak, obsessed with her health, and prone to depression. But Herbert Armstrong appeared to be a devoted and patient husband and father. In 1914, Herbert Armstrong was called to service during the First World War and quickly rose from captain to the rank of major in the Royal Engineers Territorial Force. Catherine missed her husband and longed for the family to be reunited. After he returned from France in 1918, the people of Hay referred to the country solicitor as Major Armstrong. The Major picked up right where he left off and got back to his law practice in Hay. As business picked up, across the street, a competing solicitor was losing clients. Major Armstrong saw an opportunity and offered to merge the two practices. Instead, in 1919, the man took on a new partner himself, Oswald Martin. By the end of 1920, when the man died, he left the competing practice solely in the hands of Oswald Martin, and Major Armstrong had a new rival in Hay. Between 1919 and 1920, Catherine's health began to weaken with a case of nephritis. Major Armstrong kept in close contact with the local physician, Dr. Thomas Hinks, and showed great concern for his ailing wife. But by the summer of 1920, she was suffering from delusions and no medicine appeared to be helping her. Clinically depressed and paranoid, Catherine was convinced that she had neglected her family and husband and was, quote, liable for arrest. She became increasingly neurotic about her health and was self-medicating with homeopathic cures and snake oil remedies. Dr. Hinks saw that Catherine was showing signs of mental collapse. He certified Catherine insane, and in August of 1920, Catherine was admitted to Barnwood, a private insane asylum. She suffered vomiting, heart murmurs, partial paralysis in the hands and feet, loss of muscle tone, and protein in the urine. After five months at Barnwood, under careful supervision and controlled medication, Catherine seemed to be slowly improving. She was discharged on January 22, 1921. But within a few days of her return home, Catherine threatened suicide, and her condition quickly deteriorated. Dr. Hinks checked in regularly. Catherine was experiencing delirium and suffered bouts of vomiting. Despite the doctor's efforts, Catherine showed no improvement. She weighed just 90 pounds, and soon Catherine was bedridden. Major Armstrong hired a nurse 
to permanently tend to his wife and moved into the bedroom across the hall. Catherine continued to take the medicines prescribed to her by Dr. Hinks, all the while continuing to take her homeopathic remedies. On the night of February 21, 1921, Catherine was dying. She woke briefly and asked for her husband just before slipping into a coma. Herbert Armstrong sat with his wife into the morning. Dr. Hinks was called, but when he arrived, he said that there was nothing more he could do. An hour later at 10 a.m. on February 22, 1921, Catherine Armstrong died at age 47. Dr. Hinks wrote on the death certificate that she had died of gastritis aggravated by heart disease and nephritis. Though the local newspaper described Catherine as a popular hay lady, few people attended her funeral. The wreath that Major Armstrong left on his wife's grave read, From Herbert and the Chicks. After a short holiday abroad following the loss of his wife, Major Armstrong returned to Hay and got back to work. His ambitious rival across the street, solicitor Oswald Martin, had been busy. He had married the local chemist's daughter and recently applied to join the Hay Masonic Lodge. Relations between the two solicitors had become strained. Oswald Martin and Major Armstrong were representing opposing parties in a property sale. Oswald Martin was frustrated as the deal had suffered many delays. He had sent the Major several notes about the matter, but little progress had been made. On October 26, 1921, Major Armstrong invited Oswald Martin to tea. Oswald accepted the invitation, hoping that they would discuss the completion of the sale and bring their business to a close. But the two men did not discuss the matter. Instead, they chatted politely about everyday matters over tea and scones. Major Armstrong told Oswald that he was lonely after the death of his wife, and, according to Oswald, handed him a buttered scone and said, Excuse, fingers. Oswald ate the scone and left Mayfield shortly thereafter, disappointed that the business of the property sale was no closer to resolution. He returned home and had dinner. Later that night, Oswald Martin became violently ill. The following day, Dr. Hinks was called to the Martin house. He prescribed some bismuth and said that it was most likely the stomach flu. But Oswald Martin's father-in-law, the chemist John Davies, had another theory. He believed that Major Armstrong had poisoned his son-in-law with arsenic. At first, Dr. Hinks thought the theory was preposterous. But John Davies went on 
to explain that he had made several sales of arsenic to Major Armstrong, who requested the poison from the chemist in order to kill the dandelions in his garden at Mayfield. He added that a few weeks before his son-in-law had tea with the Major, a box of expensive chocolates had been anonymously delivered to Oswald Martin's home. The chocolates were offered up to guests at a dinner party, and several in attendance had eaten them. Later that night, Mrs. Martin's sister-in-law became violently ill. Mr. Davies suggested to Dr. Hanks that perhaps the chocolates had been poisoned with arsenic as well. Thankfully, Mr. Davies had kept the box and a few chocolates still remained. Dr. Hanks soon became convinced that Major Armstrong may have poisoned his wife Catherine as well, and the doctor reported their suspicions to the home office. They sent the remaining chocolates for arsenic testing, along with a urine sample from Oswald Martin, which his father-in-law, John Davies, helped him collect in one of the small glass bottles from his shop. A laboratory in London confirmed that Oswald Martin did have arsenic in his urine. Two of the chocolates had tested positive as well. Two small holes were found on the base of the chocolates, through which the poison had been inserted. The case was passed from the home office up to Scotland Yard, and an investigation began. They advised Oswald Martin to refuse any further invitations to tea. On New Year's Eve, Major Armstrong was wearing his gardening coat when he decided to pop into his office. There, he was met by police, who interrogated him for six hours. When they searched him, they found a small packet of arsenic in his coat pocket. Major Armstrong explained that he had been using the poison to kill dandelions in his garden after he read an article in a magazine recommending the method to gardeners. He was arrested for the attempted murder of Oswald Martin. Major Armstrong was taken to Hay Jail, and word quickly spread around town as the locals rang in the new year. Reporters and photographers quickly descended on the town of Hay. The major's arrest was front-page news. In January of 1922, as Herbert Armstrong sat in jail, Catherine Armstrong's body was exhumed. Nearly a year after her death, the country's leading forensic pathologist, Dr. Bernard Spilsbury, examined her body and found it riddled with arsenic. On January 19, 1922, Herbert Armstrong was charged with the murder of his wife. I repeat what I said before, he told police. 
I am absolutely innocent. On April 3rd, 1922, the trial began. It was a media frenzy, and the courtroom was packed with spectators and reporters. The trial judge, Mr. Justice Darling, was known to be a hanging judge. The prosecution made a strong and compelling case, though all of their evidence was circumstantial. Dr. Bernard Spilsbury testified that the fatal dose of arsenic must have been taken by Mrs. Armstrong within 24 hours of her death. The defense attempted to argue that Catherine may have ingested the poison by accident or committed suicide. But witnesses testified that Mrs. Armstrong was bedridden towards the end and could never have managed to retrieve the poison from the cupboard alone and unnoticed. Dr. Hinks testified that for Mrs. Armstrong to have taken the arsenic herself was, quote, absolutely impossible, end quote. Do you honestly believe it credible, echoed Justice Darling, that a woman in the condition that she was got up with the intention of committing suicide? If the theory of Dr. Spilsbury that she must have had the fatal dose within 24 hours is correct, then the whole line of the defense is gone. The prosecution argued that Major Armstrong wanted his wife out of the way. They suggested that Major Armstrong may have syphilis and had slept with other women during the war. A woman named Marion Gale testified that three months after Catherine's death, the Major had visited her to discuss the possibility of marriage. Money was also suggested as a motive, as shortly before her death, Catherine Armstrong had altered her will, leaving everything to her husband. Testimony of the now infamous Tea Party was given by Oswald Martin, who believed that the arsenic he ingested had been in the butter on the scone that Major Armstrong handed him when he said, Excuse fingers. The chocolates, however, were never featured in the trial. Major Armstrong, even after six hours' cross examination, maintained his innocence. On April 13, 1922, after only 40 minutes' deliberation, Herbert Armstrong was found guilty of the murder of his wife, Catherine, and sentenced to hang. He was taken from the court to prison, where he would await execution. And on May 31st, at 8 a.m., Major Herbert Armstrong was hanged in his best tweed suit at the age of 53. He was the only English solicitor to ever be put to death at the gallows. Death was dealt to him on that May morning 
while the birds in Cusip Dingle were singing about the house, wrote the journalist Filson Young. And for the sins that he committed, he paid up to the full measure of his capacity to pay. Over the next 70 years, more than 80 books were written about the case, as well as a radio play called Excuse Fingers, and two TV series, Malice Aforethought and Dandelion Dead. The case was so famous that Major Armstrong was even immortalized in wax at Madame Tussaud's museum in London, in the Chamber of Horrors. But in the 1990s, the case got a second look. Martin Beals, a solicitor, moved to Hay in 1976 and found himself occupying the very same office that Major Armstrong had worked in for the last 15 years of his life. Beals was unfamiliar with the case when he moved into the office, but was shocked to find that it had been left almost untouched. Beals now worked at the very desk, in the very same chair as the famous poisoner, Major Armstrong. Despite his lack of interest in the case, over the years, Beals noticed that some of the older residents of Hay were not so convinced of the Major's guilt. You know, he really didn't do it, Martin, they would tell the young solicitor, eager to explain their theories. Even after 60 years, the locals were still talking about the Major. Many believed that he had been framed by the chemist John Davies and his son-in-law Oswald Martin. In fact, after the Major was hanged, the two of them were run out of town. Ten years after moving to Hay, Martin Beals found himself moving with his wife and three children into the Armstrong house, Mayfield. Martin Beals began to feel that the Armstrong story wouldn't leave him alone. If Armstrong had been wrongly hanged, Beals wondered, was he asking me to put it right? Beals started digging and obtained access to the original case files, including the defense material and other official documentation. The solicitor quickly realized that there had been a miscarriage of justice. Whether or not Major Armstrong was guilty, and there was certainly a case to be made for his innocence, it was clear to Beals that Armstrong had been the victim of a poorly conducted and unfair trial. In his 1995 book, The Hay Poisoner, solicitor Martin Beals gives Major Armstrong the defense he never had. In the matter of Catherine Armstrong's second will, as early as 1919, Catherine expressed to relatives that the will that she wrote in 1917 while her husband was at war, was no longer satisfactory. She told her sister 
that she intended to revise her will to leave everything to her husband. Furthermore, Catherine's personal income was not significant compared to her husband's earnings, so money from Catherine's forged will was an unlikely motive. Another motive suggested by the prosecution was the other woman. Marion Gale had been a friend of Mrs. Armstrong's and was a respectable middle-aged woman. The Major hoped that she might be a suitable stepmother to his three young children. The proposal seemed more practical than passionate. The use of arsenic as a weed killer may seem strange today, but at the turn of the century, arsenic was used for a number of practical home applications that didn't involve murder. Major Armstrong's explanation that he had purchased the poison after clipping a recipe for homemade weed killer from a magazine was perfectly plausible. The presence of arsenic in Catherine's body may not mean that she was poisoned, or even that she attempted suicide. Catherine's symptoms had been steadily worsening for years and did not fit the typical symptoms of arsenic poisoning. They also continued while the Major was away at war. Beale suggests in his book that Catherine's symptoms appear to line up with the diagnosis of Addison's disease. The presence of arsenic in her body may have been from the numerous homeopathic remedies that she was taking, as many of them contained arsenic. Even the bismuth prescribed to both Catherine and Oswald to control their vomiting contained trace amounts of arsenic. After consulting with modern forensic pathologists and an expert on arsenic, Beals discovered that nearly a year after death, it would be impossible to say with certainty how much arsenic Catherine may have taken over what period of time. The argument made by Dr. Spilsbury that Catherine had to have taken a fatal dose of arsenic within 24 hours of her death, which was so key to Armstrong's conviction, was junk science. As for Oswald Martin, Beals argues that Armstrong had no motive to want him dead. The Major had finally received the necessary paperwork to close the sale on the disputed land. And contrary to Fred Davies' suggestion that Armstrong was jealous of Oswald Martin's practice because he was taking clients away from him, in reality, Armstrong's business was steady and growing. If anyone had reason to want his competition out of the way, Beale suggested. It was Oswald Martin. Major Armstrong had also helped a rival chemist set up shop in Hay. According to Armstrong, the famous excuse fingers moment at tea never happened. His story was that Oswald was free to take whatever he wanted from the tray. As for the arsenic-laced butter, it was established 
that all of the scones were unbuttered. Oswald only became ill later that night, hours after tea and after having a full and hearty dinner at home. Beals argued in his book that if Oswald Martin had been poisoned at tea, he would have shown symptoms much earlier. Furthermore, within 24 hours, Oswald Martin had completely recovered. His symptoms fit the description of the doctor's original diagnosis, stomach flu. The enigma, in Beale's opinion, was the mysterious box of chocolates, which many people ate from without suffering any ill effects, and one person falling ill. Only two of the chocolates were found to be poisoned, and no effort appeared to be made to disguise the fact that they had been tampered with. The holes were conspicuous, and the white arsenic was pushed inside crudely. Beals theorized that the chemist Fred Davies was the most likely source of the arsenic in the chocolates. Davies had the chocolates in his possession for at least a day before handing them over for examination, and as a chemist, had plenty of arsenic at hand. It was also Davies who provided the bottle for Oswald's urine sample and then sent it and the chocolates off for analysis. And it was Davies and Oswald who had something to gain by getting Major Armstrong out of the way. In his book, Beale said of Martin's testimony, quote, The jurors were bound to be prejudiced against Armstrong because if they accepted that he had in fact tried to poison Martin, they had to be predisposed to believe that he had administered arsenic to his wife. In effect, this meant that Armstrong had to prove his innocence, not that the prosecution had to prove his guilt. And the basic law of evidence had been turned on its head. Even the judge, Justice Darling, spent the trial bolstering the prosecution's case and arguing against the defense. In the annals of crime, Beale said of Justice Darling, it would be difficult to find a judge's summation that was more perverse and damaging to any prisoner. Martin Beals, the hay poisoner, makes a strong case that Fred Davies may have framed Major Armstrong for the attempted murder of Oswald Martin and the murder of his wife. And that at the very least, the justice system sentenced a man to death over hearsay and circumstantial evidence. Major Armstrong may very well have poisoned his wife. But nearly a hundred years later, there is more cause than ever for reasonable doubt. And the dandelions still plague the garden at Mayfield. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, 
Download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.